Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John 18. John 18. And while you're finding that, I want to just kind of set up where we're going to be going here just for the next few minutes. The clock up here says it is 1018. So I have two hours (laughs) to preach. The cross of Christ is what one pastor said, hidden in plain sight. It's hidden in plain sight by many generations now. You can get cross jewelry, pendants, wall decor, tattoos, t-shirts, anything and everything cross-related is available to us. But in the last generation, last two generations really, somehow in the church's frenzy to please the lost believer, unbeliever, instead of to plead with the lost unbeliever, and in the church's frenzy to impress the unbeliever instead of to implore the unbeliever, the cross has gotten lost in there. And now, now the cross is a side note. It's an asterisk. It's a necessary, inconvenient foundation before moving on to the really exciting things. And what cultural Christianity in the evangelical world, particularly in America, has been enamored with now is a a lifestyle of the pursuit of personal happiness using the cross as a lever by which to propel me to happiness instead of a life which has the cross as the focus continually. As one ultra-famous current pop Christian culture icon writes from right here in Bakersfield, she says, quote, I want to give you the tools to make your life better. So see my blog posts on everything from my favorite books to my favorite sweaters to how to change your life. You know what her favorite word in there is? It's my. And that is now, I I think, often reflected in the church. The cross and the gospel have become a means to an end, a means to a different end, to have a better life and to make all my dreams come true Instead of being the focal point now, the cross and the gospel have merely been relegated to being an introduction to other supposedly more important things. But how much emphasis does the Bible place on the cross? Well, the Bible places tremendous emphasis on the gospel of Christ, the cross by which Christ purchased the salvation of all who would believe on him. We have four accounts of the cross in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John each in their own way recounting in tremendous detail the pathway to the cross. This is obviously important to God. The cross is not an introduction. The cross is not an asterisk. The cross is is not a side note. It's not the foundation for something better. God never intended us to reduce the cross to simply, Jesus died for your sins so you can have a happy life. He never intended that. Now, our word gospel, it's the Greek word euangelion. There's other forms of the word as well in Greek. It simply means good news or good tidings. We get our familiar word evangelism from this word. Euangelion and its related forms, the gospel is named named in detail 117 times in the New Testament. And of course, the term gospel is joined at the hip with Jesus Christ himself. The, The two go together. In fact, all four accounts of the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ are called what? The Gospels. You can't have one without the other. Matthew's Gospel says in Matthew 4.23 that Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel. 
Mark's gospel opens with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke 20 verse 1 records almost nonchalantly one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Now, ironically, we're here in John's gospel, and John never uses euangelion. He never uses the word gospel in his gospel, and yet he gives us such clear teaching on the gospel and certainly makes plain the purpose of the gospel. John twenty thirty one. these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the gospel. We would also note that the gospel is not only joined at the hip with the person of Jesus Christ, but it's joined at the other hip with the idea of preaching. Forty times in the New Testament, we see some form of the phrases preaching the gospel or proclaiming the gospel. And so the gospel is meant to not just be theorized, not just to be written about, not just to be explained. It's meant to be proclaimed. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us this meticulous detail concerning the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we shouldn't be surprised either to find embedded in the very fibers of this narrative the principles and the principal features of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They're right there in the stories. And so toward that end, as we now look outside the walls of Jerusalem toward the cross which looms ahead as we approach Good Friday in the coming weeks. We want to follow the account found in John's gospel and we'll continue as we have been in John Sunday mornings and Sunday nights to get us to the cross. And this account gives us really these features of the gospel itself embedded and in the fibers of the story. And so we're simply calling this series in John 18, 19, and 20 the glorious gospel the glorious gospel, and we'll be outlining some of these principal features of the gospel in this form. What you must believe. This is what you must believe to be saved. And our main application for you as Christians, our main application for this series is really to highlight the need for you to be saturated, for you to be soaked, for you to be completely enamored in this culmination of Christ's ministry and its implications for the gospel The Bible never reduces Christianity to Jesus died for your sins. There's so much more to it than that. There's so much more detail. And therefore, we want to reflect that same level of detail. And as we're emphasizing in 2020 here, the Great Commission, the proclamation and the sharing of the gospel, I I believe this series will bolster your understanding and your grasp of the gospel, which, as I just read, it fits the purpose of John, that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is a Great Commission gospel through and through, start to finish. Now, I think this is a useful time to just mention the idea of evangelism training. Evangelism training is useful. It's helpful. We're going to do it again for you this year. But can I say this? The very best evangelism training, first and foremost, is always the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. No technique, no slick presentation, no memorized outline will ever substitute for your personal, intimate grasp of the gospel truths. This is why I preach, because it is a guaranteed work. It is a guaranteed success. Wouldn't you like it in your jobs if you could be guaranteed to have success? I enjoy that. You know why? Because Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. 
Not that my slick presentation or your outline or your technique is the power of God. It's the gospel itself. As a matter of fact, we put together a short gospel presentation based on all the messages we're going to do in John 18, 19, and 20. Just to demonstrate the gospel in the passion of Christ, we've included it in your bulletins this morning. And here it is. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his father's plan for his suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. But to be part of that kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. You must believe that Christ's death is your only option and hope of salvation. You must believe that Christ truly died and was truly raised from the dead, thus completing payment for your sin. And only in Christ can you have peace with God. Therefore, repent of your disbelief, turn away from your love of sin, and turn instead to Christ the Savior." That is the message of John 18, 19, and 20 in one paragraph. So that's what we'll be going through. Today we're going to consider the very first principle featured, and that is to believe the willingness of Christ. To believe the willingness of Christ. And I just read at the very top of that paragraph, Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his Father's plan for his suffering. Now, we camped out for 14 messages in the tremendous high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17. But now we get back into the narrative, the story portion of the gospel of John. This is going to create a faster pace, create some excitement. So we'll be moving pretty quickly each week through this all-important part of John's gospel. So for this morning, what I'd like to do very simply is highlight six ways that we see the willingness of Christ to go to the cross on your behalf his complete gracious agreement. Six ways we see the willingness of Christ to go to the cross on your behalf. The first basic way we see this willingness of Christ is that he went in free submission. He went in free submission. Free submission in the sense of not attempting to make his sacrifice difficult to bring about. That he went to the cross in a way that made sure that his father's plan would definitely happen. No resistance whatsoever look with me at john 18 we'll consider the first two verses when jesus had spoken these words he went out with his disciples across the brook kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now judas who betrayed him also knew the place for jesus often met there with his disciples and we'll stop right there for the moment we have a time reference here beginning this section in john's Uh, gospel with a little note when jesus spoke these words what is he referencing well he's referencing the prayer of john 17 plus the farewell discourse of john 14 15 and 16 now when we were back in those sections i didn't emphasize this much but i think it we might circle around back to where was jesus when he was speaking to his disciples physically where was he geographically at the end of john 14 The very last verse, Jesus had been telling them of the peace and the calm and that he was offering them. He was making glorious promises to them. And all of a sudden, at the very end of John 14, he says, rise, let us go from here. 
And we noted that this isn't a somber, please rise so that we might depart these premises. That's not the, the atmosphere here. He's just said, the ruler of this world is coming. Meaning Satan is on his way in the person of Judas. So this isn't a somber, please rise. This is get up. We got to get out of here. Jesus has unfinished business. He has more to teach. And he will enter into his time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before willingly subjecting himself to his arrest. Now, some say that what Jesus is saying here is that they'll be leaving soon and that the rest of John 15, 16, and 17 still happens in the upper room. And in our text here, John 18, verse 1, does say when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. But I think it's a pretty valid argument to say that they did, in fact, leave the upper room at the end of chapter 14, and the rest of their talk is while they walked. And that the leaving of chapter 18, verse 1, is their exit from the city. He went out with his disciples, and it says, across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. And so that is most likely talking about actually leaving the city. And so it's entirely possible, and I would say probable, that John 15, 16, and 17 have been happening in some way while they're walking Either way, though, now we pick up, they're definitely walking. They're definitely now outside the city. Jesus directs them in their walk that evening after the Passover meal toward the brook Kidron. This was at the bottom of the Kidron Valley to the east of Jerusalem. They would pass directly under the base of the outer court of the temple. It would be 200 feet directly above them. The brook would be dry this time of the year. It's dry most of the year, but it fills up during the rainy season. But it's just a matter of walking across the, the, the dry uh, riverbed. They would climb the opposite slope of the Kidron Valley, which quickly turns into the Mount of Olives. And that's where they were headed. And on these slopes is the Garden of Gethsemane. It just means an oil press garden. Now, if you've read through John 18, you might think that there's something missing. John omits, for his purposes, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't find that in this gospel. The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus in this intensive time of prayer to his father. These prayers in which he uh, read one of them this morning, in which he's expressing his emotional agony and his sorrow to his heavenly father. But we have to remember to whom John's gospel is written. John's gospel is written to unbelieving Jews. That is his original audience. And so he seems to downplay the agony that Jesus endured in prayer in the garden in which Jesus said, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. And he highlighted more the the great willingness of Jesus Christ to submit himself to the Father. Verse 2 tells us that Judas, the betrayer, knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. This is a place which Jesus used to meet with and to teach his disciples, especially in the week leading up to Passover. Luke 21, 37 says, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives. It's most likely that during the nights of this week he would retreat back uh, all the way to Bethany in some, on some occasions, which is a village just outside of Jerusalem. That was the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But closer to Passover itself, as you got closer, Jewish law required that if you're a visiting Jew, you must stay within what they redefined as the extended city limits. 
And these extended city limits included the Garden of Gethsemane, but did not include Bethany. And so Jesus only goes this far on this particular night. Remember, he is perfectly God, perfectly man, and he always keeps the law. It's very likely that this walled garden grove, this olive garden, had been set aside by a wealthy landowner for Jesus to use with his disciples. He seems to have access to it at any time. It was private property, and yet Jesus and his disciples stayed there frequently and as a continuously welcome guest to the owner. Now, you might be saying, well, that's not very nice. Why don't he let them stay in the house? Well, this was normal. Uh, First of all, Jesus and his disciples slept outside often. Lots of people slept outside. And frankly, during the time of Passover, there would be hundreds of thousands of people. You could look all over Jerusalem and see little campsites all over the place because they were all visiting and that was very common. And so to have this private garden in which to be with his disciples was a tremendous blessing. But verse 2 gives us proof that Jesus went to the cross submitting himself freely. Why did he go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Because it says Judas knew the place. Because Jesus often went there. So he went to the most likely place that Judas would look for him. He made it easy for him. Judas thought he was springing a trap on Jesus. Actually, it was the other way around. Jesus, the sovereign God of all, was simply orchestrating his father's plan to the most minute detail, going exactly where he could be arrested. This is as good a place as any to note that Jesus would only be taken because he allowed it, because it was time. You recall in Luke chapter 4, a time near the beginning of Jesus' ministry in which he is in the synagogue and he's proclaiming that Messiah... The Messiah predicted in Isaiah 61 had come and that it was him. And he made this proclamation in his own hometown of Nazareth and they didn't like it. To them, he was just Joseph's son. Luke 4 records, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. You remember what happened? But passing through their midst, he went away. He simply passed through the people and left them there. We're not told how he did that. We're just told that he did. Why did he do this? Well, it wasn't his time yet. And then we get to John 18. Now it is his time. Now he set up the situation such that Judas could find him easily. And though he could, he would not pass through their midst. He would submit himself freely. Or as Isaiah 53, 7 predicted, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He submitted himself freely. So the second way we see the willingness of Christ to go to the cross. He went in complete comprehension. He went in complete comprehension. Verse 3 So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And we'll stop there for a moment. Those coming to arrest him brought torches, even though it was a full moon. Passover always happens at a full moon. Judas brought a band of soldiers, and he also brought officers of the temple, the temple guard. 
Who are these band of soldiers? It's the Greek word spera, and it means a cohort, specifically a, a Roman cohort. Now, on paper, a Roman cohort consists of a thousand men, 760 foot soldiers, 240 cavalry. In reality, the usual cohort had about 600 foot soldiers, but the same word can also be used of a smaller contingent um, of about 200. So at the very least, there were 200 men. At the most, there were 1,000 men, somewhere in between there. But why did Judas bring so many to arrest Jesus? Why, why is that necessary? Because he brought not only the temple guard, the Jewish law enforcement of the temple, but he brought hundreds of Roman soldiers as well. Well, most of the time, if you looked on a map of Israel to the north, um, on the coast, there was a city called Caesarea. And there was a, a fortress there, a Roman fortress. And the purpose of the fortress at Caesarea was to hold a large contingent of Roman soldiers, auxiliary soldiers, to go to various places in the, in the Middle East area, in the area of Judea, to form security task forces. And so during this time of Passover, this was the biggest security risk time in the city of Jerusalem from their vantage point all year long because of the hundreds of thousands of people who descended on the city. So you have hundreds of extra soldiers now having come down from Caesarea, from that northern fortress. You combine that with the fact that Jesus was wildly popular with many, and he was also a very polarizing figure. And we're just talking about maybe 72 hours earlier, three days earlier, Jesus had ridden the colt of a donkey toward Jerusalem with uh, crowds shouting his glory and proclaiming him to be the son of David. What does that mean? It means they were proclaiming him to be the true king. Now, those are the seeds of a potential rebellion. And so the risk of a mob reaction to Jesus' arrest was extremely real. And so you have this huge force brought out to quell any potential crowd reactions as Jesus is brought to trial. And by the way, just a side note here, no one can say the Jews crucified Jesus because it was both Jew and Gentile who were involved in the murder of Jesus Christ. The whole world is convicted. No one is left out. But none of this is a surprise. All of this was according to the sovereign plan of God. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? He knew all that would happen to him. Now, many of you here are in the medical profession at one level or another, one type or another, and, and there's something that the rest of us have noticed that you do, and it's something we appreciate. And that is that you use euphemisms or code words as a great act of kindness to minimize something that you're about to do to us. The nurse says this will just be a little pinch right before putting a harpoon in your body, right? The x-ray technician says, puts you in this odd position and says, hold still for just one moment. But then he walks four miles down the hall to the on button while you're standing on one leg. The surgeon says, this is just a minor procedure. You YouTube that procedure. You see four doctors, 15 technicians, and somebody wildly mopping the brow of the lead surgeon. You say, that's not a minor procedure. All this is a kindness, and we appreciate your care. We don't want you saying, okay, I'm about to ram this needle into your body, and you're going to wish you were dead. Three, two, one. Thank you for not saying that. Thank you for minimizing our expectations. We want you to do that. 
because our ignorance helps us. But Jesus did not have that advantage. He was fully aware of every single detail. He's fully God, fully human. He knew all that would happen. He knew that he would receive a public flogging, a whipping. He knew how many lengths of leather were in the whip. He knew how many pieces of bone and iron and lead were in the tips of the leather strips. He knew how many times it would tear his back into shreds. He knew that the iron and the lead pieces would cause deep bone bruising while the sharp bone fragments would would tear his flesh to ribbons. He knew the names of those who would flog him. He knew the speed at which the straps would come at him and the exact amount of blood that he would lose. He knew that the Roman soldiers would shove a crown of thorns on his head. He knew exactly what it would feel like as the thorns went all the way to his skull. He knew how much blood he would lose from that injury. He knew that since he hadn't had anything to drink since the night before, he would quickly become dehydrated with perspiration and blood loss. He knew that he would be beaten with rods while being mocked. He knew how long the rods were. He knew what trees they came from, when they were made. He knew the names of the men beating him. He knew how many blows he would receive and precisely where. He knew how badly he would be bruised by those rods and exactly what it would do to his body to make movement excruciatingly painful. He knew how many times he would be punched in the face. He knew the names of the men who would do it. When Matthew 26 recorded, they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? He knew the answer to that question. He knew their names. He knew the day they were born. He knew their parents' names. He knew the day they would die. He knew everything about them. He knew the names of the men who would rip his beard out of his face. He knew that they would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 52, 14, that he would be so disfigured that he would not only not be able to be recognized anymore, he wouldn't even look human. He knew that he would become so weak as the soldiers forced him to carry the heavy crossbar of his cross, that horizontal beam. He would be so weak that he would collapse on the way. He knew that a man named Simon would be conscripted to carry the cross for him. He knew the length of the metal nails to be pounded into his wrists and his feet. He knew the names of the men crucifying him. He knew the precise location of the nails. He knew that when the nails went in, they would sever the nerves leading to his hands. He knew that he would be slowly suffocating on the cross as first his shoulders and then his wrists are dislocated. He knew that he would face the awful wrath of God completely alone, that he would stare into the face of God the judge, and God the judge would make him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. He knew all of this. He knew that he would be on the way towards suffering congestive heart failure as fluid built up all around his heart. And he knew that there would be a terrible moment in time after having endured the horrific wrath of God there would be a moment where he would voluntarily die on purpose, not of his wounds, but of his own free will, as he would cry out with a loud voice and purposefully give up his spirit, letting his body die. He knew all of that. He was fully aware of every detail before it ever happened to him. 
And he went to the cross in full knowledge of the outcome. He was utterly willing. He was completely in complete comprehension. There's another way we see the willingness of Christ to go to the cross. He went in merciful compassion. He went in merciful compassion. Look with me at verse 5. He just said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. One of my top ten favorite verses in the whole Bible. When Jesus said, I am he, this little Greek phrase can simply be a self-identification, but we should note two little details. First of all, the English translation supplies he. This can be rightly translated simply, I am And of course, our second detail is in the context of all Scripture. The little phrase, I am, is obviously rich and full of meaning. The most famous use of I am is God speaking to Moses when commissioning Moses to represent God to Israel. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am, or I am who I am, serves as a definition of, or a commentary on the similar name, the name Yahweh, which is at its core simply carrying the meaning, I exist. It is the covenant name, the covenant-keeping name of God, which he identifies himself as the one true living God. There are no other gods. I am Yahweh. I am. I exist. Now, we shouldn't think that Jesus is simply uttering these words, I am, as some sort of magic effect as if anybody saying those words could knock down hundreds of soldiers. It was a common enough phrase that anyone could say, but we need to remember the original Greek-reading Jewish audience and think about the whole of John's gospel. What would they have thought? This isn't the first time that Jesus has used this phrase to mean more than simply identifying himself. The end of John chapter 8 records some Jewish leaders insulting Jesus and even claiming that he's demon-possessed. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he compares them to Abraham, and he says that you are unworthy of your ancestor. Jesus proclaimed, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And the Jews mocked him. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And in a blatant claim to be God, Jesus answered forcefully, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now, an unbelieving Jew reading this was going to get it. Oh, he just claimed to be God. And did those men fall down at his words? No, they didn't. They tried to murder Jesus on the spot, but he escaped. The first time in John's gospel, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. The hearers attempted to murder him. And now the second time, The hearers are physically knocked over by the power, not merely of the words, but by the power of the one saying the words. He was giving a small demonstration that he was, he is, and he always will be the great I am. Now, why do we say all this? Because Jesus could have spoken as God spoke concerning Egypt 1,500 years earlier. Exodus 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know, I am Yahweh. 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them. And indeed, the Lord God, Yahweh, did stretch out his hand against Egypt, slaying the firstborn of every family from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. And yet, Jesus Christ, although proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the God of Abraham, he is the God of Isaac, he is the God of Jacob, he is the God of Moses, he was merciful in his compassion. Because the same all-powerful, almighty God who brought the empire of Egypt to its knees could have slain the men who dared lay their hands on the Son of God, but he didn't. He merely asserted to him to them who he was in a fashion such that they could get up and dust themselves off. Tremendous mercy. And who knows how many of them perhaps came to faith in Christ in the coming days. We think about the centurion who was in charge of crucifying Jesus. He's the one who proclaimed, truly, this man was the Son of God. And those around him did as well. And isn't that the whole point of the cross? To show mercy and compassion to wicked people. I think that we would like to think that we would understand Christ if we were living in that time. What makes you think that? Almost nobody else did. He showed mercy. He showed compassion. He was willing. Let me show you another way we see the willingness of Christ. He went in active protection. He went in, we'll call this active protection. Verse 7 So we asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you should know this by now. John's gospel is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And this question is really representative of this at at a micro level, at a small level. He is the center of the story. Whom do you seek? And they were seeking Jesus to crucify him. What they should have said is we are seeking Jesus to be our Savior. And that's what the reader of John's gospel says. John's hope is that they will say, but now Jesus places himself as a hedge of protection around his own disciples. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of these, of those whom you you gave me, I have lost not one. And so Jesus requests that his disciples not be taken with him. And this is probably the quickest fulfillment of a prophecy of God in all of history. Because when did the prophecy happen? Like 20 minutes earlier. Chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus prays, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. And now here in verse 9, the fulfillment of that word of God, his disciples would be protected. We all have recently spent a lot of time together in John 17. And so you know from our study of John 17 that this protection goes far beyond just protection from arrest. Because of course later in their own ministries, every one of the disciples would suffer greatly for the sake of Christ, including arrest and execution. And so Jesus' immediate protection of his disciples then serves not just to protect them from from arrest right then, but it serves as a symbol. It serves as an illustration of a greater spiritual reality that when Jesus says you're secure, you are secure. That when Jesus says you're safe, you are safe. That when Jesus says you are set apart, you are set apart. Our Savior went to the cross with this active protection that he might secure you, that he might save you, that he might set you apart. 
And by the way, after hundreds of soldiers just being knocked to their feet by the mere word of Christ, did you notice they didn't argue with Jesus or try to arrest the disciples? They're like, "Ah, I think we're good with that. I think that'll work. The disciples were clearly protected by the power of their Savior who had determination to secure them, to save them, to set them apart. And in fact, they didn't try to arrest the disciples even when Peter took matters into his own hands. And that brings us to the fifth way that we see the willingness of Christ to go to the cross. He went in, we'll call this, undeserved association. He went in undeserved association. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And we know this a great deal of detail here telling us this is definitely an eyewitness account. And for some reason, Peter thought he was going to save the day against hundreds of Roman soldiers. But his attempt at a great rescue or the start of the battle of the kingdom of Christ, or maybe he thought he was going to begin Armageddon, it ended very quickly and anticlimactically with one ear falling to the ground and one guy going, ow, and that was it. Luke records, in fact, that Jesus healed the ear of Malchus. But why did Peter the fisherman have a sword in the first place? I mean, it would make more sense to to us if the text said, and Peter drawing his fishing rod, but he had a sword. Why did he have a sword? Especially considering that apparently his aim was very rusty. Well, Isaiah 53, 12 predicted that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. He would be counted as a criminal. Now, Jesus is fully aware that he would be crucified between two criminals, fully knew that the chief priests and the Pharisees were trying to make him appear guilty, but he was also completely and totally innocent. He's sinless. He's spotless. And so if he goes to trial actually defending himself, then he's going to be exonerated. And so to be crucified, he would have to appear as a criminal. He would have to appear as a rebel. How did this come about? Well, when Jesus and the disciples were getting ready to leave the upper room after the Last Supper to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22 records this almost offhanded and unusual exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Luke twenty-two thirty-five, and he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Now, what he's referring to is a time when he sent the 12 out and he said, you're going to go preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he said, don't bring any money with you. Don't bring extra clothes. Trust me and I'll provide for you. And so you might think that here all of a sudden Jesus is trying to give them an object lesson in having faith. He's not. He's just saying, there was a time when I asked you to trust just me and not in anything you have. But now is a different time. He goes on and he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. What's he saying? Well, he's telling them, get your bags of money, make them obvious. Get your knapsacks, your your bags, filled with your stuff. And if you don't have one, buy a sword. So let me ask you a question. If you're in Jerusalem late at night with just torches and lanterns lit on occasion and you see 
Late, late into the night, a dozen men, some jingling money bags, others carrying heavy bags filled with something, and others carrying swords, quickly making their way out of the city. What would you think? You would think something just went down. And there's a band of criminals getting out of here. So why is Jesus setting this up? Well, he says in Luke 22, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. In other words, Jesus would allow himself to appear as a criminal. But it's really just kind of a stage prop. Oh, we've got two swords. And he said, that's enough. It's enough to confirm to those arresting him that perhaps he needs to be arrested. Luke twenty two thirty eight. they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he said. It's enough, just enough to get Jesus in the hot water he needs to be in to be arrested. But even though Jesus quoted Isaiah 53 and told them it was just so he could appear as a criminal, Peter misunderstood this and he took one of the swords and tried to use it. Yes, Peter, you'll bring in the kingdom with two swords. Here's a squirt gun while you're at it. Let's just be that real here. Well, why is this important? Because Jesus identified as a criminal. To put it another way, he identified as you. He identified as a lawbreaker. It was an undeserved association. Why did he identify as you? He identified as you so that you could identify with him. Righteous, holy God will deal with sin. And he will deal with sin by pouring his wrath on the sinner. And if you don't identify with Jesus and Jesus doesn't identify with you, then you are the one upon whom the wrath of God must fall. And speaking of the wrath of God, that brings us to the pinnacle, to the high point of the willingness of Christ. One more way we see the willingness of Christ to go to the cross. He went in full condemnation. He went in full condemnation. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter's attempt to rescue Jesus was in essence a denial of the work to which Jesus had set himself to. That work was to complete his father's mission. Jesus refers to this cup that his father has given him. It's just a metaphor basically and broadly to mean whatever God gives you. The scripture uses the metaphor of the cup in a variety of ways under the broad heading of what God gives you. Psalm 23, 5, we're very familiar with this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What does that mean? It means the cup of the goodness and the presence of God. That's what God gives you. But Isaiah 51 speaks of a different sort of cup. Isaiah 51, 17, God says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. What is the cup of staggering? This is a picture of God mixing up the cup of his own wrath to be poured out on sinners. Psalm 11, verse 6 says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. But what is God promising in Isaiah 51 to Israel? He's promising that the cup of staggering will be removed from them. 
he goes on to say in Isaiah 51, beginning in verse 21, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. In other words, the idea of being drunk with a cup of staggering is that you have, you have been taking in the wrath of God, taking in the wrath of God, taking it in. You can't take anymore. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Now, what is the wrath of God? In Hebrew, the wrath of God speaks of heat. It can be translated venom, rage, anger. In Greek, there's more just the concentrated idea of anger. But the anger of God doesn't merely speak of an emotion. It speaks of a judicial action based on the sin of a person or the sin of a group with whom God is angry. When God is angry, it means something bad is about to happen to them. So that brings up the question, if he says, you shall drink no more the bowl of my wrath, how can God do this? How can he be just and still forgive sin? No human being can take the wrath of God against sin and ultimately survive and be made right before God. So how can it be that you shall drink no more? Because as the cup of staggering was being brought to your lips, as the liquid flame of the wrath of God was being brought toward you, coming to you for you to drink down for all eternity, as you were about to stand before God at the great white throne judgment and gulp for all eternity the fury and the wrath of God as the cup which is called in the Bible the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's called in the Bible the fiery lake of burning sulfur. It's called the cup. The cup is called the lake of fire. It is called the place of the second death. It's the place where the worm does not die, the place of eternal punishment, the blazing furnace, the place where the fire never goes out, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. As this cup of the infinite ferocity of the wrath of God was coming toward you at His request and in His hand, God the Father, the eternal judge, as that cup came toward you, He turned. And He turned it away from you. And as you turn, you see the outstretched hands of Jesus Christ who took the cup from Him. And as He said in the garden, Your will be done. And he put the cup to his lips. And he drank it all. Instead of you staggering to an eternal torment, Jesus staggered to the cross and he drank the cup to the dregs. Now what does that mean? This is so important. Because not only did Jesus have full knowledge of every detail of his coming torment as we spoke about, he had full knowledge of the wrath of God against every sin that you would ever commit. Every single one. He would bear the weight and the guilt and the degradation and the punishment. Listen, not just for some vague idea of your sin, but with full, complete knowledge bearing every single infraction, every single sinful word, every single sinful thought, every single sinful deed that you have ever committed. All of them in his total knowledge, his all-knowing nature, listing in his mind every sin that you would commit. And in that full knowledge, he would drink the cup of staggering all the way down so that not one sin is left to your account. It would all be placed on 
him. And he was willing. I do counseling with some of you and ask you what your greatest sin is. Sometimes you can't answer because it's too embarrassing. Well, think about how embarrassed you would be to have on this screen behind me a scrolling list of every sin you've ever committed. How guilty you would feel the degradation, the depravity. Christ took it all. He took it all and he was willing. Listen, there was a tomb. A tomb of the infinite punishment you deserve from God and that tomb had your name on it. That tomb was yours. Our hymn of the month My song is love unknown has a stunning line in verse 6. It says, what may I say? Heaven was his home, but mine was the tomb wherein he lay. That tomb with your name on it is the one he went to. How willing Christ was to stand before God in your place, to be utterly crushed by God for you, to be placed in a tomb with your name on it. And so my hope is that you'll remember and love and worship Christ for his willingness to be your sin bearer as the one who went to the cross in free submission, in complete comprehension, in merciful compassion, in active protection, in undeserved association, and in full condemnation. I hope that that will make you a better worshiper of Christ and that you will fall down in gratitude at the foot of the cross. Could we pray? Our Father, as we contemplate this text, the the horror of watching the only sinless human being ever to live, God, very God, the Son of God, being arrested, treated like a criminal, and soon to be beaten to a pulp and brought to his knees under the weight of the cross. It's staggering to us, Lord, to think of what he bore on our behalf. And he made a simple request. He said that whenever we take the bread and take the cup, that we would remember him until he comes, until we see him face to face. And so it is our joy and our privilege this morning to remember the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's table per his request, per his prescription. We thank you for this word from God in John 18, and we pray in Christ's name, amen.